Coming up on Stu Does America, America right now is asking whether Joe Biden is a racist. We have the definitive answer coming up. Dan Andros joins us to talk about the reported deathbed confession from the apparently very indecisive Roe from Roe versus Wade. And as America's only conservative vegetarian, I speak to the CEO of Impossible Foods, Pat Brown, who has this crazy idea that maybe vegetarian food shouldn't suck. Who thought? Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Watch the show on YouTube. Just search for Stu, and I'll be the first one there. Please subscribe and click the little bell for notifications. And you can get merch from the show at stewdoesmerch.com all the time. And uh, subscribe to Blaze TV as well at blazetv.com slash stew. Make sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And you'll save 10 bucks. What better way to get your smart analysis, stupid laughs, and only occasionally the opposite? Stu does America. Is Joe Biden a racist? That's the question everyone is asking following an interview he did with Leonard Larry McKelvey. In case you're not up on the McKelvey family history, Leonard is better known as Charlemagne the God. The name Charlemagne is based on the emperor of the Romans. He is perhaps best known for the Capitulary to the Jews, a piece of legislation that helpfully reminded Jews not to loan money out or all of their possessions would be taken and their right hands would be cut off. Also, the, T-H-A, is based on the English word, the. Here's part of the interview that some people have somehow found offensive. Well, you know, Thanks so the- much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. Ooh. Uh, now, a lot of people are saying that Biden said African-Americans that vote for Donald Trump aren't really black. But that's not what he said at all, to be fair. Listen carefully. He said that any African-American who even considers voting for Donald Trump isn't black. So to any African-American out there who happens to be undecided, remember, you've already lost your black card. Sorry about that. Some have also focused on the strange use of the pseudo slang word ain't. Listen again. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. (laughs) He just comes off as so incredibly authentic, doesn't he? The campaign looked around and spotted someone working there who wasn't white. So they had them release a statement. It reads. Vice President Biden, blah, 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 spin, blah, 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 lies, blah, blah, blah. He has a black friend or something, blah, blah. Orange guy is worse, blah, blah, blah. Help me. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I was under the impression that it might be frowned upon for an old, rich, white guy to design the set of circumstances in which a black person was able to be considered black. Kind of thought this might be a textbook example of white splaining. I was under the impression that African-Americans were allowed to think for themselves and come to their own decisions 
on whom they might vote for. Apparently that line of thinking has gone extinct, relegated to the dustbin of history with believe all women and Elon Musk is saving the world with his electric cars and solar panels. Now, I guess we're supposed to want, I don't know, an 80 year old white person to be the arbiter of blackness. Only uh, certain women are supposed to be believed. And Elon Musk is an evil, bloodthirsty capitalist because he wants to open his own factory making electric cars and solar panels. But even under this brand new set of rules, do we have enough information to understand if Joe Biden is a racist? To my knowledge, this is the first time anyone has ever accused him of prejudice. Well, you know, we accept that one time. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Uh oh, there was also the, the one time he had some kind words to say about segregationists. He said, I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland. He never called me boy. He always called me son. Well, guess what? At least there was some civility. Eastland was famous for commentary like the wonderful quote. I have no prejudice in my heart, but the, the white race is the superior race and the Negro race is an inferior race and the races must be kept separate by law. No racism in his heart, though, at all. Calling uh, that civil even had those on the left writing stories like Biden's racism is more veiled than Trump's, but no less real. And there was the time his campaign said the South Carolina Black Caucus chairman was purchased. Quote, he told me uh, he was with Joe Biden until Mr. Moneybag showed up. This is what happens when billionaires get involved, whether it's Donald Trump or Tom Steyer. They just buy things. They don't have to persuade anybody. They just buy them. Or when he ran an ad that said Trump rolled over for the Chinese uh, on coronavirus and people are calling it racist and xenophobic. Or when Cory Booker had a few things to say in the debates. This is a crisis in our country because we have treated issues of race and poverty, mental health and addiction with locking people up and not lifting them up. And Mr. Vice President has said that since the 1970s, every major crime bill, every crime bill, major and minor, has had his name on it. And, you know, speaking of the debates, he was asked about whether his comments from the 70s were racists. You know, like when he said, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, the sins of my own generation. And I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. And then he was also called racist for his response to being called a racist. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't want they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. Make, make sure the kids hear words. And of course, if you want to bring it up, he he did seem to suggest that all black children were poor. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Right. But sometimes his vision of what would relate to a black voter is a tad questionable. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. 
and he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did. Yeah, he, and back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. Yeah. God, I love, I, I freaking love the corn pop story. And there was a time, I will admit this, the Trump campaign unearthed a story from 1987 where Joe Biden, quote, Campaigning in Alabama in April, Biden talked of his sympathy for the South, bragged of an award he had received from George Wallace in 1973, and said, quote, we Delawareans were on the South's side in the Civil War. All right, well, yes, and yes, he called segregation a matter of black pride, and that integration would prevent black people from embracing their own identity, you know, yeah. But to be fair, though, he did ask uh, the, quote, blacks on my staff whether he harbored something in me that is deep-seated that I don't know. So some awareness, at least. You have that. And he did brag to the Washington Post, I still walk down the street in the black side of town. So that, I mean, that's a, a point in his favor, right? And he's been very complimentary of minorities in several situations, like their hard work and ingenuity when opening up 7-Elevens and Dunkin' Donuts. In Delaware, the largest growth in population is Indian Americans moving from India. You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. To fully, I'm not joking. He's not joking. You see? I mean, and there was a time that he was describing the man who would go on to be the first black president. I mean, you got the first sort of mainstream African-American yeah. who was articulate and bright and, and, and clean and a nice looking guy. I mean, it's, that's a storybook, man. Mm. I think you could detect the very non-racist compliment there that a black man who is articulate defined as the ability to speak coherently, and clean, defined as morally uncontaminated, is a storybook, like a fairy tale, defined as a children's story about magical and imaginary beings. So, is Joe Biden a racist? Of course not. He's got a D right after his name. So has your uh, town, your state had gyms open up yet? I mean, if you're like me, you haven't been able to figure out what to do with all that extra time you used to spend at the gym. I've tried to do the fried food eating. I think that's a good workout. Um, Now that we've all kind of maybe put on a few pounds, I know I did. uh, Fast Blast is here to solve the problem. One of the biggest problems of dieting is it just it's too freaking slow for me. I got to be honest with you. If I'm going to put in work and not eat all the foods that I want to eat all the time, basically seven to eight Thanksgivings per day. If I'm not going to do that, I want to lose more than like a pound a week. Uh, Both can be difficult at times. You know, intermittent fasting is the approach that Fast Blast takes. It's a great approach. I like it a lot because it kind of is like a work hard, play hard (laughs) idea for me. I have these days where sometimes, you know, like you're, you're, you're doing a fasting day. They make it really easy with these smoothies that they have from Fast Blast. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're, you're making sure you get through it and your, 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 uh, your metabolism is, starts to speed up. You start to have this great situation where uh, you are burning these, uh, you know, you're burning the fat off. It comes off really fast. 
Uh, and then in other days, you're just gonna eat normally. Um, and it, it really makes it easy. The smoothies come in a convenient and easy to squeeze uh, pouch. No blender, no scales. I'm way too lazy for all that. No calorie counting, no carb counting. I'm not a scientist. It's easy and fast. That's Fast Blast. Be smart about it and do your own homework. Make sure it is right for you. Learn more about fasting at fastblast.com slash blaze. They can customize this entire program for you. It's really great. And as always, use the slash blaze part because that's, you know, how they know you like this stupid show. Get started today with Fast Blast for a healthier, happier, and smaller you. It's fastblast.com slash blaze. Pat Brown did the impossible. He made plants taste like meat. It's something scientists and cooks have tried to do for years. And he did it while on a sabbatical from his job as a renowned biochemist and professor at Stanford. Then, just shy of his 60th birthday, he founded Impossible Foods, makers of the Impossible Burger. Aww. I love the Impossible Burger. Uh, it is, as America's only conservative vegetarian, to me, it is basically a miracle. Uh, but a lot of people want nothing to do with what is called plant-based meat. So I took the two most pro-meat people in the universe, Glenn Beck and Pat Gray, and we did a blind taste test of a regular burger and the Impossible Burger live on the air. I want to go on record. I think B, just by the look of it, is the fake burger. Okay. Okay. Hmm. We're both trying. Really? I'm trying A. So A definitely tastes like meat. So now I'm going to try B. The big, worst part about this, too, is I couldn't bring the queso fries. Mm. Oh, those, that's. B is the fake burger. Mm. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's not bad, though. No. Does it taste like meat? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It absolutely tastes like meat. Uh, but right? I would still so eat this. You would still eat it? I'd still okay. eat this. And um, I would think that it was a this, burger. The, if you just gave this to me fresh, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was hot and fresh, I bet I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the difference. And that's B? Yeah. That's B. Um, the, probably the reason you wouldn't know the difference is that is the real burger. That is the real, is the real You're one? You're kidding me. Are you serious? B is the real, bur- or real burger. A is the impossible burger. That is insane. <laughs> that insane? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, it really is amazing. Uh, if you can win over Glenn Beck and Pat Gray, you are achieving the impossible. Joining us now is Pat Brown, CEO of Impossible Foods. Pat, have you have you seen this clip before? Oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. That was a genius prank. <laughs> I owe you. No, I mean, it was pretty amazing because, you know, it's it's been a huge advancement, not only uh, in my life, uh, but apparently in Pat and Glenn's as well. Um, I, I'm so glad you were able to come on because I think it's what you're trying to do is so, so interesting. In the past, you know, a vegetarian food, a plant based meat was pitched to people uh, basically on the basis of guilt. Like, you know, eat this to save the animals, eat this to save the planet. You decided to go with eat this because it tastes good. Why did you go that way? Uh, Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, um, let me just tell you uh, what got me into this was that um, I did some research when I was at Stanford. I I was a microbiologist, but um, on my sabbatical, I wanted to pick the most important problem in the world that I could uh, contribute to solving. And I came to the conclusion that the problem was the catastrophic environmental impact of the uh, way we produce um, meat, fish, and dairy foods today using animals and technology. And um, we can talk about whether you believe that or not, but it was sufficient to motivate me. And uh, and I realized that we're not going to solve this problem by telling people what to do. I mean, you know this very well. 
Uh, um, you're not going to shame people into changing their diets. You're not even going to be able to educate people to change their diets. I've gone to, uh, I went to the Paris Climate Conference, for example, and you're surrounded by thousands of the most uh, dedicated environmentalists in the world, and and they actually they actually understand the problem, but they all go out and have a steak for dinner. Okay, <laughs> and uh, so I, this was true actually. I mean, I had to walk a mile to find a place where I could eat, but but. Um, but the point is, they know the problem, they care about the problem, it's not enough to motivate them to change their diets. China, which is used to getting pretty good responses from their citizens when they ask them to do something, <laughs> asked the citizens to cut back their meat and dairy consumption by half. That was three years ago. And what happened? Absolutely nothing. Mm. The, the meat and dairy consumption continued to rise as fast as it was rising before. It didn't go down. And what that tells you is something that's kind of just common sense is that people love the foods they love. It's too important a part of the pleasure of life for them, uh, for them to sacrifice, even if they are motivated to do so. Um, so given my goal, which was to replace the most destructive technology on earth, the only way I was gonna achieve it was not by regulation or persuasion, but by making a better product and basically competing in the free market and letting consumers uh, decide the, the winner. And in order for us to win, we had to focus on the hardcore meat-loving consumer, which is the only one that matters for our mission, and make our job just relentlessly to do a better job of, of delivering what they want from meat. And that was a really hard scientific problem, but that's, was, in my mind, the most important scientific problem in the world was understanding what makes me delicious in a way that would enable us to um, to make something better. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, it's an interesting and a huge problem to solve, right? You're trying to do something very big. Um, you know, I, I'm a conservative, uh, unabashedly, uh, and a vegetarian, which is a strange, somewhat of a strange combination. Um, and, you know, they have... I don't think it's strange at all, actually. I, I don't think it's strange at all. You know, I, I've come to that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think like there is a there's a lot of alignment between conservative ideology and this, you know, when it comes to, you know, to life, innocent life and, and you know, protecting God's creatures. There's a lot of uh, uh, synergy there, I believe. But it has become I get the impression talking to other conservatives. It's such a tribal belief. It's just this thing where people believe Liberals are the vegetarians and conservatives are not. And it, it is one of those sure. situations where, you know, for a problem to be solved that's as big as you're trying to solve, you're going to need the 50 percent of the country that likes low taxes, too. How do you do you think about that at all? How do you bridge that gap? Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, we, we don't consider what we're doing to be a political activity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. In fact, the you know one of the core founding principles of the company is that uh, we are not going to rely on or expect uh, any help from government or any yeah. uh, from the UN or any you know WHO any international group. Um, we we have to achieve our mission by basically using the most subversive institution in the world, which is the free market. Yeah. And um, and that basically meant that we focus on 
doing a better job of serving consumers. That's how every, in, in history, when a new and better technology comes along, which this is, that, um, that does a better job of, in terms of efficiency, in terms of economics, in terms of impact, and ultimately in terms of serving customers, that's how you win. And um, so it's not, it's, 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 it doesn't become, uh, you know, we are a free market, like we're, we're all about the free market, okay? Mm. Um, there, there's a big alignment with conservatives. The, big, the, the, the issue for us with government is that we don't want them to get in our way. Um, right now, the, the deck is stacked against us by, by um, you know, government policies, including the Farm Bill and, and yes. uh, other subsidies. Um, we don't expect those to go away. Um, and uh, so we have to have a strategy that works even when the deck is stacked against us. And really, that just turns out to be um, make a better product that delivers what consumers want. We're not out there attacking ranchers or farmers. We depend on, on farmers. And, and a quarter of the people at the company have families that are in farming and ranching. Uh, we're not attacking anyone. It's, we, we have a very simple goal. Deliver something great to meat lovers and, um, and let the consumers decide. Um, I think that's a very, you know, completely compatible with uh, um, conservative philosophy. Yeah. It may be tribally a little weird, but philosophically it's not. I think that's true. You know, there is a, there's that, that line, um, and, I, and I'm so glad to hear you talk positively about the free market. I feel like we don't hear enough about that. It's such a dynamic force in our country and has done so much good, I think, around the world. Um, and that's, I, I love your approach on this. You know, when we were, um, when you first started uh, out and you were just, Impossible Burger was something I had only read about. I was in New York for a weekend. It was only in a few restaurants. And I chased this thing around that island uh, the entire weekend, unsuccessfully, by the way. Uh, and there was a slow build for, for, for where you guys, uh, you know, you're, you started seeing it more and more restaurants and it started to spread. And then it just seemed like one day you guys all of a sudden had to come up with enough Impossible Burger to supply thousands and thousands and thousands of restaurants. Was that terrifying? Was it, 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 was it exciting? What was it like going through that moment? Okay, well, first of all, we're, we're dead serious about our mission, which is to completely eliminate the need for animals as a food production technology by 2035. So, hmm. so from the get-go, um, you know, relentless exponential growth um, has been sort of baked into our business plan. And um, so that's, uh, in a way, it was obviously a great thing when we saw so much demand, um, but it was it was exactly obviously what we wanted. I guess any business wants that. Um, the, uh, we were a little bit um, caught off guard uh, about a year and a half ago because um, we suddenly had a such a surge in demand driven by the fact that we had upgraded our, our product. We had something that was more delicious, healthier, and and uh, better in every way that married to consumers. Tons of inbound interest, and and we couldn't keep up in manufacturing. Um, we hadn't hired enough workers at our plant. Uh, we got behind, and there were shortages, and, and bad on us because uh, that was a terrible disservice to our restaurant customers, and 
um, the last thing we wanted. But we've caught back up and we learned a very uh, hard lesson, which is we have to bet relentlessly on our success, plan for success, and and never never get caught off guard by our own success again. So um, uh, a good lesson. But yes, and you know this year we're uh, launching in retail. Yeah, um, we had planned that for a while. Uh, we've accelerated because of the effect of COVID on the restaurant business. Um, and just in the past month, we've launched in uh, almost 3,000 restaurants. We're now in more than 3,000 restaurants. We were about 200 before that. And we're going to more than double that by the end of the year. So um, That's a lot of growth. It's growth, growth, growth. Yeah, in a very short period yeah. of time. Um, I have about a, a couple of minutes here. I want to get, get to two more things. One, I've heard you talk about, yeah. and you mentioned, you mentioned when you're talking about animals, you described it as a food technology. And I don't think anybody thinks of it yeah. like that. You think of meat as a thing that comes from an animal, period. Is it, is it, is that true? What's the right way to think about this? And you mentioned efficiency as well in there. Those things work together. This is a more efficient way to come up with a very similar thing, right? Yes, it is. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about what are the, um, what are the costs of meat production currently? Um, you know, there's there's obviously labor, but there's all the inputs. There's there's the cost of the land or renting the land. There's there's the cost of the water that goes into it, the fertilizer, the pesticides. Um, the our our process uses one twenty fifth the land area, less than one twenty fifth the land area. It uses about uh, one eighth the water. And um, one twelfth the fertilizer and uh, pesticides and so forth. So our our economics are structurally better. Mm-hmm. And you can think of it another way that um, uh, you know our con- the conversion efficiency of a pig, ter- you know, turning soybeans into pig, is like on the order of ten percent. In our case, it's a hundred percent. And um, so, so it's 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 structurally better uh, economics. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and um, I think that's a, that's it's, when you say like turning soybeans into a pig, you don't th- think about it. No one thinks about it that way. But that's essentially what you're doing, right? You're you're feeding uh, these animals things. They're getting bigger, and eventually, at the end, they turn into a food product. Not the most efficient pro- pro- way to do that. I do want to ask you though before you go, because uh, I have had the Impossible Burger, I have had an Impossible cheesesteak. Uh, I've had an impossible burrito, I think, at Qdoba, I think. I've had all these things. I've heard there's impossible sausage that exists. What uh, what else is out there, and uh, what do we expect next? Okay. Well, actually, you know, when I found the company, we weren't focused on beef. We just That was a strategic choice for our first commercial product. Sure. Uh, we demoed uh, our pork product. Um, earlier this year at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, of course, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, actually, we, I just heard from uh, uh, two both Michelin star chefs in Hong Kong that tried a bunch of uh, Chinese dishes, and they said in all five of the dishes they tried, it was better than the animal dry version. Mm-hmm. These guys are are not vegetarian chefs, I should add. Um, so that's going to be a great product. Um, uh, which we're probably not going to be releasing it until next year, just because of uh, the need to build production up. Sausage is coming fast, and uh, you you got to try it. It's <laughs> I have to say it's amazingly good, and uh, um, and then we have other other products um, that we've worked on in the lab. 
that um, really it just it, it just depends on when we can get the scale and the bandwidth uh, to release them. Right now, it's just we're capacity limited with our existing product. Mm. And if we try to launch new products, it just competes for capacity. So, um, well, but they're coming. That, you know, we've made chicken, we've made fish, we've made milk, we've made a bunch of things. I think they're going to be awesome, and you just have to wait and see. Well, I'm very excited for these developments. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for filling my belly as many times as you have, probably too many times. I sometimes overindulge, uh, but I do appreciate it, Pat. And seriously, thank you so much for what you're doing. Uh, it's a it's a life changer. If you're a vegetarian, this is a big deal, uh, and I, I do really uh, appreciate it, and thanks so much for coming on. Uh, let me just say, 85% of our customers are meat eaters, though. Really? Not just vegetarian. All right. Come on yeah. on board. We love it. Pat and Brown. So yeah, go ahead. Oh. The majority of them become repeat customers. Ah, very interesting. Okay. I believe Thank it. You. People like it. Thanks so much. Pat Brown, CEO of Impossible Foods. Thanks for coming on the program. We're back in a second. There's only a couple things everybody has in common in jail. One is they were <clears throat> the victims of abuse of their kids were, or, their, or, their, or, their, or their mother was. Number two, can't read. Number three, they don't have any job skills. They were in a position where they didn't get a chance. Why does it make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense. Uh, not everyone in jail can't read, was abused, or has no job skills. It, it seems like he thinks everyone in jail uh, is something other than like a white-collar criminal, which there's plenty of white-collar criminals in jail. I'm pretty sure a lot of them can read. Aren't there prison libraries? Isn't that a thing? Uh, it's an amazing clip. Throughout this entire interview with Joe Biden and Charlemagne, uh, there was uh, uh, several, several bizarre moments. And one of the things uh, I always think of when I think of the word manifesto, <laughs> it's a weird setup for a clip. When I think of the word manifesto, I think of the Unabomber, right? Like it's this kind of like psychotic, weird way of like demanding, uh, you know, the world react to whatever thing you have. Well, Joe Biden's got a manifesto. A black manifesto, uh, and he describes it. Watch. No, the one that I, the plan I have is my manifesto for Black America, <laughs> and a, and particularly the portion of it that relates to how, in fact, we're going to deal with the prison system. Hmm. If you are in prison, Please. if you are convicted of a crime, no one should be going to jail for a drug crime. Period. Nobody. Nobody. So, so no matter what the crime, particularly marijuana, which makes no sense for people to go to jail. There's a lot to get through here. No one should go to jail for drug crime. So, like, you know, the biggest uh, drug uh, kingpin is not going to jail. That's an interesting proposal. In addition to that, he seems to keep coming back to this idea that everyone in prison is black. Like his proposal for black America is what he's going to do in prisons. I think when you think of a prison policy, do you put a color on the person you're thinking of? Like, that is a weird thing. And he does it multiple times in this interview. Let me leave you here, though, with this one. Uh, Joe Biden knows a lot of people that smoke weed. But what it affects, does it affect long term development of the brain? And we should wait till the studies are done. I think science matters. I think we got decades. I think we got decades and decades of studies from actual weed smokers, though. Yeah, I do. I know a lot of weed smokers. (laughs) 
Happy to welcome back my good friend, Dan Andros, to the program. Dan is, of course, doing amazing work over at Managing Editor of Faithwire. If you're not subscribed to them on YouTube, definitely go uh, do that now. It's a great channel uh, to keep an eye on. And Dan, we kind of talked a little earlier this morning, and I knew you were looking into this story, and I'm fascinated by it, mainly by the reaction of it. It's a new documentary about Roe uh, from the Roe versus Wade situation. And th let me just lay out the way that I think most people have heard this story. Roe from Roe versus Wade on her deathbed, deathbed confession the entire time after she had she had the uh, you know, was in the initial case for or, over abortion. She had this big conversion publicly ta talked about uh, becoming a pro-life uh, activist. But that whole situation was fake. She was paid off by uh, right wingers. So she would fake her opinion and she would mislead everybody into thinking that pro-life was the way to go. She confesses to this on her deathbed. And now I guess that upends the entire pro-life movement. Is that basically how you heard the story? Yeah, that's basically it. And um, for starters here, my interest in this story is the pro-life movement does not hinge uh, at all on whether or not, you know, Norma McCorvey is pro-life or pro-choice. has zero impact at all. It's the killing of a child. That's why people are in on it. Right. So uh, in on the movement. So uh, it doesn't hinge on it at all. I'm just interested in how this is being framed right now, because the moment I saw that headline, I was very skeptical. I was like, really? Like they just created this conspiracy to have a big lie publicly and no one has talked about it or uncovered it. No Christian in that movement felt, um, you know, convicted uh, by the spirit that they were doing something wrong and came clean about it. Like, mm -hmm. no, nothing seems and odd. not only that, she lived her life as a Christian. Um, for all of these years, like abandoned the LGBT lifestyle. So it, it just wasn't adding up for me at all. So first of all, let me ask you this very fundamental question. There is a clip that goes around of this documentary where she says, this is my deathbed confession. But do we have her on video actually saying or explaining this herself? Or are we taking this at this point from the filmmakers? Well, from the filmmakers, it's airing tonight, and she there's a there's a line they say in there that she says, if a young woman wants to have an abortion, it's fine. It's no skin off my, you know, uh, swear. So um, <laughs> that's supposedly coming tonight. But when I watch that clip, they do show her say, this is my deathbed confession, but she kind of laughs. She says it like, this, I guess this is my deathbed, deathbed confession, <laughs> and she's laughing. So I'm mm. like, I don't know what the context here is, but um, but several pro-life advocates who, who have known her for years, Flip Benham being one, I spoke with him. Uh, the other day on the phone about this, and he doesn't buy this storyline for a second, and he's known Norma for almost 30 years. Abby Johnson, you know, we all know her mm -hmm. from from uh, former Planned Parenthood director. Um, she said she got a call from Norma McCorvey just a couple days before she passed away and, you know, was just looking to kind of clean out her soul, really, like talking, I, I want to talk to someone else who's had a big number, meaning responsible as an abortion provider, um, for lots of deaths. And obviously Abby is one of those. So, mm -hmm. um, so all these indications, Alveda King, um, there's a, there's an open letter from a bunch of pro-life activists who knew her for a long time saying that they don't, they don't believe this. Um, and they think it's being misrepresented. Uh, Flip said that Norma would say crazy things to be provocative and things of that nature. So, um, you know, but this narrative that the, that the Christian right orchestrated this whole thing was, it's, it feels dubious at best to me, yeah. Uh, especially when you start looking at the way this guy is framing it, the filmmaker. Okay, so I want to come back to the filmmaker here in a second, but the, 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 they make a case that she was paid to change her views. 
Um, she was the reason yeah. she did this is because she was compensated from right wing activists. And that proves that she never believed this in the first place. Uh, to me, it seems like, you know, again, like I, 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 anybody who's going to be converted on this issue, I think is great. But, you know, I, it was never something that was incredibly important to the to the pro-life movement to have one additional person, even though she was a notable one and, and did make some news here and there. Is there any reason to believe that she was actually paid to change her views or are they just trying to to kind of uh, fudge this line between getting paid for speeches and getting paid for books and all these things? What's your take on that? I I absolutely you know, my suspicion. And again, I haven't seen the documentary, so I don't know what they have. And that can even be all out of context. But my suspicion is it's the latter. I mean, listen to how it's framed here in an interview with The Daily Beast uh, that the filmmaker says. Um, he says various different ways that she was receiving money, things like book deals, benevolent gifts or speaking fees. It was a very elaborate and creative way that all this was done. <laughs> I mean, not- book deals and speaking fees. I mean, this is and benevolent gifts could be anything. I mean, it could be a whole there could be a whole million reasons that are completely above board as to why you would pay somebody and label it a benevolent gift. Yeah, Maybe you just wanted to help her. Like, yeah, like, like she's a Christian is, who's is, struggling with with her finances. Like this is very fundamental to the church. Are we going to say that every person who gets money from Christians the church do. is being paid off to change their views? I mean, that's absurd. Right, and then their big claim is, well, they coached her on what to say. Well, she was a very rough around the edges person. You don't have to know every... Um, you know, strongest pro-life talking point by heart to, Mm -hmm. you know, without needing coaching uh, to, in order to truly believe in the cause. And it's like, you know, she's not a seasoned professional here out at public speaking and suddenly she's thrown into the spotlight. So it's completely reasonable to, to have someone help you do that. And they're, that's protecting her in that way. And, and they're making it sound like this big nefarious plot. Like they coached her on what to say. Who wouldn't perfect, you know who gets coached before on what to say before they go out is presidential candidates before debates. <laughs> right. They have whole coaching sessions. They, they, they were coached on what President Obama was coached on what to say before his debate with Mitt Romney. <gasps> oh, my God. I mean, they make a big deal about so, it. I mean, just, there are actually like other senators that take the role of the other candidate and they actually walk through the entire debate in like a dry run. Yeah. Uh, they're they're so well prepped for that. Um, so tell me about the filmmaker. I don't, I, he's not a is he a big accomplished filmmaker? Is it someone that we know? I, I've never heard of him. I, I guess he's made a few films. Uh, he made one about transgender kids at a transgender camp or something of that nature. But he himself is gay and he's open about this. And so he says he had no dog in this fight. And that's why Norma was open to talking to him. But um, it's pretty evident when you see who the villain is in these trailers mm-hmm. uh, that it's obviously the evangelical right. Uh, it's pretty obvious that he has a dog in this fight. He's an LGBT activist, essentially. And who's enemy number one for LGBT activists? It is the Christian right. And uh, when you look at the articles, when you look at the article in GQ, I mean, they essentially boiled uh, the the Jimmy Carter loss down to they literally wrote this line in the GQ article about this film uh, talking about abortion and, and, and all of that. And they said, well, Jimmy Carter, the moral majority basically, you know, rallied Christians uh, against abortion. And that cost Jimmy Carter the election. Like. Jimmy Carter was so unpopular that Ted Kennedy was trying to run and unseat him in the in the primary. Right. He got primary. This is as a like this is yeah, no. Uh, the guy was so unpopular that makes absolutely yeah, no sense. It may have also been the double digit inflation. I mean, that could have been part of it as well. Uh, I don't know. I'm just could throwing that, that out there. Or it could have been abortion. Well, 
So, but the other funny thing, Stu, is you know, he as he's complaining about the creative ways uh, that that Norma that the right was supposedly paying nefariously paying a uh, Norma McCorvey, um, the 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 writer for the Daily Beast, and and you know, God bless him for this, says, "Well, did you pay her for this?" And uh, he says, "No, we didn't pay her for this." He says, "But." Uh, she did have a lot of pictures and things that she gave that she let us use, and we licensed those. <laughs> so you paid her. <laughs> you paid her in a, in a creative way. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't. I, you know, it just seems like you know, using his own standard, he would have to say that he was nefariously paying her to change her view <laughs> in this last minute. And actually, uh, Life News um, uh, has a text message that they claim is you know someone provided to them. Um, and I forget who it is, but it's on their site. Uh, they show the text message. It's from Norma McCorvey, someone who was friends with her. And she was texting at the time she was filming this documentary. And she said, hey, I'm filming this documentary. These guys from so-and-so. And uh, and they're paying me. So that's good. So wow. she was saying that they were paying her. So um, so at, none of this stuff seems to be adding up to me. I mean, I, it could, I could be. I haven't seen the documentary. But these pro-lifers are asking for the unedited footage, and I would be very interested to see that because whatever this clip is, um, I'm sure it's selectively edited. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. It definitely uh, does. Maybe seem she that was way. being crazy. I don't know. Maybe she was just doing stuff to to make money. I have no idea. But um, but to paint the religious right as the bad guy in this scenario, I'm I'm just finding this claim very unlikely. I'm happy to be. You know, I mean, I can be proven wrong. I'm not above that, but I just this is not passing the smell, smell test for me at all. Yeah, and it does seem like the, the, their claim essentially lies on this person who they're telling you has spent their entire life as a liar. So wouldn't you like? There's <laughs> got to be some suspicion that this last-minute conversion for money uh, would be the same argument. I, I hope that's not the case. I mean, I, you know, I really hope that this is one of those situations where they they are lying about what happened. Uh, because, you know, I, you hate to see something like this happen on a, on a deathbed. Um, but it, it is one of those situations where I, I'm, I'm interested enough to watch it. I, I kind of want to know a little bit more about this. And, you know, if you have the balls to stand behind your work, the unedited footage should come out. And you should show it to pro-life organizations and let them look at it. I'd be fascinated to see it. Uh, Dan, maybe next week we can follow up on this and kind of go through what actually happens uh, and, and maybe uh, show a couple clips here. Because I think it is one of those situations that... You know, it's 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 fa it's not necessarily important to the pro-life movement, but it is a fascinating uh, piece of almost media and potential manipulation. Uh, we'll get into that uh, next week as well. Dan Andros, managing editor at Faithwire. Uh, make sure you go subscribe at their YouTube page. Thanks for coming on the program. Have a great um, holiday weekend. We'll see you in a minute. Please review the show on iTunes. Of course, the correct number of stars is five stars. Uh, this one comes in five freaking stars. Stud. Oh, I see this strategically placed STUD on the wall behind your head. Seriously, it's great. Whatever. We did not plan that, I swear. You know, does the, the board just, just says it. Um, I give you six freaking stars, but iTunes won't let me. There is snark and then there is stew snark. I need this podcast in my life, if only to grasp how terrible the Cuomo brothers truly are. At a time when rational, intelligent discourse is more scarce than toilet paper, stew is much needed. Voice of reason. He also dresses very snappy. Subscribe. He's great. Whatever. Five freaking stars. How about this one? Uh, give 
showed me all the graphs. I've been on the fence about your show until today. I'm pretty sure you get some sort of record with all the graphs and you won me over in the process. That's five freaking stars too. How about this one? Five freaking stars, whatever. Best new podcast and phenomenal ad to Blaze TV Network. Please stop praising Governor Cuomo. He does nothing good. Yeah, I know I've been too positive on that. Uh, we'd appreciate more graphs, whatever. The hair dryer hair cutter. Yeah, I'll need that. That's right, we're giving that away. I've got it right here. Um, does it go on? No, I think I have to plug it in. Anyway, uh, she really screwed up her husband's hair is the basic line of that one. Maybe we'll give it to her. We'll see you next week. Have a good Memorial Day.